the best part about working with adolescents is that they're just so resilient. Hi, this is Alice. This is Shafali. And you're listening to Peds Admit. Here at Peds Admit, we've talked a lot about kids, but what about teens? Yes, we adore these patients, but things can get so awkward so fast. Especially when we're taking that social history. Right? I'd love to make this part of my H&P workflow just more comfortable for everyone. Absolutely. So today we're sitting down with Dr. Natasha Ramsey to break down the HEADS assessment and figure out what all of those E's, A's, D's, and S's actually stand for. Natasha's an adolescent medicine fellow, and she also has an MPH. Her interests include reproductive health, family planning, HIV prevention, and teen pregnancy prevention. We are so excited to sit down with her and talk about the HEADS assessment. Without further ado, here's Tasha. So I feel like when we transition from med school to residency, many of us are comfortable seeing school-age children, but a lot of us don't have extensive experience with teenagers. Can you walk us through what you think some of the major differences are between interviewing children versus preteens and adolescents? So I think the major difference is that the expert is no longer just the parent. It's also the child. So with younger children, you tend to have to gather the history from the parent and you kind of use the child as backup or collateral. But with the adolescent, really, you should be focusing your information gathering on the patient and the parent can help to like either negate and or support some of the information that they give you. But really, you should be targeting your visit towards the adolescent, giving them the autonomy and the space to open up and talk about what things are bothering them or things that they're concerned about. So really, it's just more about pivoting and changing your focus and who you're interviewing during the visit. And then whether we're doing an H&P or we're seeing an adolescent in clinic, we always get a HEADS assessment instead of a typical social history. What are the components of a HEADS assessment and what are some strategies for making our interviews less scripted and more organic? Yeah, so I always tell my adolescents that the HEADS assessment is a bunch of questions that we ask them because adolescents are typically healthy, but they can do a lot of things that could put them at risk. And my goal is to help decrease that risk or help them identify any problems that I can help them with. So I think that that's the first place that you have to really start is letting them know why you're gathering this history. And then I think that like opens up the door for it to be a more open conversation so they don't feel like you're just asking them a bunch of questions. The HEADS assessment really is supposed to be a structured way for you to gather the history. So you kind of like make sure you're checking off all your boxes and don't forget anything. But you don't need to do it in like that exact order. I find it to be helpful to do it in that order somewhat because it starts off with the less invasive topics and then goes into like the more difficult to talk about topics. So just for a review, the HEADS assessment, H is for home, E is for environment, the other E is for education, employment, activities. And then that's kind of where I stop. And then the more sensitive topics are drug, sexuality, and suicide. And there's also additional S's that have been added, like safety. And so... I tend to gather the first part of the history about like home and school and eating and activity from the patient as well as the parent, because oftentimes you'll ask the patient like, oh, how's your diet? And the kid will be like, fine. And the parent will be like, uh-uh, he doesn't eat any vegetables. He doesn't have any fruit. He never does this. He eats all this junk food. So I think it's really helpful to have the parent there to help clarify some of those things. But then when it comes to the more difficult topics like drugs and sexuality, things like that, you really want to make sure that there is confidentiality and that the parent is out of the room when you ask those questions. And I often will let everyone know up front that I'm going to ask some questions. And at some point, 
you know, parent, I will have to ask you to step out of the room. This is a part of our protocol. And this is really for your child to learn how to advocate for themselves and build autonomy. And then before I ask those sensitive questions, I often will say, the next part of this is going to be kind of sensitive. These are questions that we ask everyone. And then I start to go into the drugs and the sexuality and the mental health issues. So just I try to, as much as I can, give them a heads up about what's to come because the heads assessment can be very sensitive in the same way that you're doing a physical exam and you're like, okay, now I'm going to feel your belly. It should be the same way with the heads assessment. You should really be like, okay, now I'm going to ask you questions that are seem weird, but the reason why I'm asking is because blah, blah, blah. So just to highlight some of the most important points that you just mentioned, aligning yourself with the patient early on so that it feels less like an interrogation and more like you're on their team and trying to help them advocate for their own health. And then promoting a sense of normalcy by just setting a very clear expectation at the top of the appointment, basically telling parent, patient, this is what we're doing and this is how it is. And then I think that's a great point about the physical exam. I've actually never even thought of it that way, that we should be doing the exact same thing with this type of interview. How do we tailor a HEADS assessment to fit the developmental stage of the child that's in front of us? Because a 13-year-old is so different from an 18 or 19-year-old. Yes. The way that you collect the history definitely varies by age. And this is something that comes with time and, I think, practice. But definitely with the younger patients, you want to kind of introduce topics or ask questions about, like, how much do you know about this before you jump into asking specific questions? So with your older teens, sometimes they'll come into clinic and they're like, I have discharge and blah, blah, blah. And they know exactly what they need. They know exactly what they're coming for. But if you have a 12-year-old, that's their first time in the adolescent clinic. They don't even know what it means to have alone time with the doctor. And then you're like, kick their parent out the room and then you're there with them alone. It could be very scary. So another thing I always do is at least offer like, you know, do you want your parent to be in the room for a part of this discussion or are you comfortable? I try to make sure that they don't feel you know, alone during that time. And then I often will start very basic with what do you know about puberty? So I kind of start from the beginning and I'm like, have you noticed that your body has been going through any changes? Has anyone talked to you about this? If you had questions, who would you talk to? And then I kind of go into more of the detailed questions. So that kind of gives you a gauge of where the person is. If they're like, what's puberty? Then that's completely you know, different than someone that's like, I am having sex and need STI testing. So I think Starting with probing questions about what they already know is a good way to gauge where they are. With the younger patients, when you start to elicit concerns, of course, you'll say something about, we can't tell your parents unless you're a danger to yourself or to others. In a clinic specifically, but also potentially during an HPI session, are there situations where you would want to talk to the parent one-on-one and how would you go about coordinating that in a sensitive way? So I've definitely had situations where something would come up during the visit that was a very complicated or difficult situation or topic. And I would always encourage the patient to discuss it with the parent. So I would always elicit, like, is this a safe environment first? Sometimes the parent and or other family members can be a part of the problem or be involved in the situation. And so that's a different discussion about CPS and other things. But if it's a situation that I feel that the parent would be very helpful in the child navigating, I will often encourage the child to loop in the parent. And it's not just based on age. It's in particular instances, you know, if it's a younger patient, it may be a more complicated social situation. And so definitely, but I've definitely had 18, 19 year olds where I was like, we should loop in your mom because it sounds like she's a great support system for you. And this is very difficult for you to deal with on your own. So do you want me to tell her during the visit and then help you discuss it with her? Like, how did you want to navigate this? So I think it's important to offer that 
to all of our patients, even though we do kick the parent out of the room. The parents know the child the best and they are oftentimes the biggest advocate for them. And we can leverage their their strength and leverage their ability to help their kid. So as often as I can, I try to loop the parent in if I think it's a huge problem. There are other times where the, the patient is like, nope, I don't want my parent involved. And at that point, you have to respect it. But you can at least encourage and say like, or we could talk about this another time. Like I can bring you back, blah, blah, blah. And there are times where I have separate conversations with the parents because oftentimes the parents concern can be completely different than the child's concern or they might give you information that the child didn't give you because the teen or adolescent isn't concerned about it but the parent really is so I try to give space for both the parents concerns and the adolescent's concerns and try to gauge where they are in that discussion and try to help bridge it. Do you routinely find a way to talk to a parent alone during every well adolescent visit? No, I don't always talk to them alone, but I do explicitly ask them, are there any other concerns that you have? Because like I said, sometimes their concerns don't align. The parent might be concerned about school and the kid is not concerned about school. They're more concerned about something else. So I try to make sure that I'm addressing both the parent's concerns and the adolescent's concerns during my visit because they're still the parent. (laughs) And sometimes they see a bigger picture or a bigger problem that the adolescent might not see. And often they will bring that up in the visit and the adolescent will get really upset about it or kind of shut down about it. So I use the opportunity when I'm alone with the adolescent to ask them, like, how do you feel about what your mom said? You know, what do you think is going on to try to get an idea of where the disconnect is and how I can help them. But I don't routinely talk to the parent alone. Anything I talk to the parent about, I would talk to the adolescent about, but not always vice versa. So let's spend some time and actually break down the components of the HEADS assessment. H is typically for home. What actual specific questions do you ask about the patient's home? So I often ask, where do you live? Who do you live with? You know, do you have your own room? Is the neighborhood that you live in safe? So I ask a lot of questions about the family structure. I ask them about if they're close with their family members. And then another thing that often with our patient population that a lot of people forget to ask about is the paternal figure in the family. So oftentimes if the patient comes with their mom, people won't ask anything about dad, but sometimes dad is in jail or dad may have passed away or they live in another state and they don't talk to them. And so I try to ask questions about that as well to make sure that I'm not missing some other social situation. So I would always recommend just asking if they're with one parent, where the other parent is and kind of what the relationship is like with that person, because that can often be an area of stress for our adolescents. And that is something where I'm always concerned that I'll come across as judgmental if I ask that. But it seems like you generally found it to be beneficial and not awkward. Absolutely. I've had situations where I ask, oh, and what about dad? And I've had a patient tell me that his father passed away in the past couple of months and it was really difficult, but now he's doing much better. So it opened up a conversation about mental health and other services that if he needed, we could provide him. So I always, always ask now. And then what about education and employment? How do you couch these questions? I normally ask, what grade are you in? What school you go to? Just like the general information. And then I ask them, how do they feel about school? How are their grades? Are there any classes in particular that they find to be challenging? I try to screen for if they're having any ADHD symptoms or any other learning disability or school issues. And then if I do identify any of those problems, I try to figure out, are they getting help? Do they have resources? 
Do they need more? So that's a good time to screen for any of those issues. And then I also asked about friends. Do you have friends at school? Do you consider yourself to be popular? I, I try to get a feel for what their school experience is like, but not just do you have good grades, A's and B's. I try to get an idea of are they struggling? Are they getting those A's because they're spending millions of hours studying? Or are they not doing well in school because they're depressed? Or are they not doing well in school because they have a learning disability? So I think that's a good time to like kind of tease out that. I asked more nuanced questions about their experience in school. And then as far as employment, I try to ask how that balances out with school. So how many hours are you working? Are you finding it difficult to balance working and school? Are you looking for a job? Some of our adolescents are looking for work and don't know where to start. So I always ask those kind of questions. And then with employment too, you can ask more social questions about are you helping to support your family? Do you feel pressure to support your family? Those kind of things. I don't always ask everyone that, but sometimes that does come up during that part of the interview. So activities always is like a nebulous topic for me. Sometimes I just kind of let the patient dictate where we go with that. But what in general are you actually looking for when you ask about it? So with activities, I I think the E and the A can either be exercise and activity. So I kind of lump activities together as like exercise, sports, clubs, anything that they're doing for fun at school or after school, and then anything they're doing for fun outside of school. So I often will ask, like, are you playing any sports? What position do you play? Even if I don't know or understand the sport, I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, tell me more. Maybe sometimes (laughs) I can, you know, use that as a tool to connect with them. And then... I also will ask about any clubs they're in. Are you in the chess club? I have kids who are in the robotics club and won a competition. So it's something that they're very proud of and oftentimes love to talk about. So I try to ask them about the kind of things that they're interested in. And then if they're not involved in anything, I try to get an idea of what they're interested in so that I could connect them with resources to then do the things that they might be interested in. So if I know of organizations in the community that offer that service that they're like, oh, I really like to like write poetry, I could connect them with an organization where they can start to foster or do that. And I try to get an idea of how much physical activity they're doing. Like, are they walking once a week or are they exercising, you know, three hours a day? That's a good time and place to like gauge how much physical activity they're getting. So this is kind of the transition point between the less sensitive and the more sensitive information. I generally have a question about your flow of your HEADS assessment. So a lot of what I'm hearing is you're using each of these parts of that, you know, HEADS acronym to kind of branch out into a larger conversation about that category and get more information, really connect them on a deeper level and let them dictate where it goes. Do you also do your anti-story guidance and your referring them to those resources while you're doing this? Or do you gather all your information and wait until the end? What's your personal style? I tend to give them the resources in the moment that we're talking about it. So if they say, oh, I want to learn how to paint. I'm like, oh, there's this great organization that does painting. I'll pull up the website, I'll show it to them. And I'll say, you know, I'll give you this information at the end of the visit. But I just wanted you to see this is the number. This is how you call. The same thing if we're talking about education, I'll be like, you know, I I want you to do the Vanderbilt assessment, evaluate for ADHD. I'll print them out for you at the end. I bring up each kind of thing as I'm going. So I don't wait until the end to be like, okay, now that I've done my head's assessment, let's talk about the 10 things that we're going to do. I kind of throw it in there as I'm going. So if we're talking about eating and diet, which there's lots of 
E's and D's and A's. But diet is very important to figure out as well. You know, a lot of patients do suffer from eating disorders. And so, you know, if I have a patient, for instance, who's like an athlete and they're like, oh, I want to gain weight. Like, how do I gain weight? I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about making sure you're getting enough, enough protein, you're getting enough calories, you're drinking enough water, avoid, you know, protein shakes or protein powders. I use whatever the opportunity is to give the anticipatory guidance in the moment that we're talking about the topic. And I try to do that with the parent in the room so that they can reinforce it because sometimes the parent has already said it and then you say it and the parent's like, see, I told you. And now they heard it twice. And so I think it's powerful to have both um, the parent and the doctor say the same information. And so when it's time for me to transition to the next part of the HEADS assessment, at that point, I'll look at the parent and I'll say, you know, like we discussed, this is the part where I have to ask you to step out. And the parent is always like, I know, they always kick me out and then they'll leave. <laughs> and at that point, once the door closes and I'm sure that we're in a safe space, I say to the patient, okay, so have you had alone time with the doctor before? And some, you know, depending on the age of the patient, they may say, yeah, like, I know you're going to ask me all these weird questions, like, and they'll just answer the questions for you. <laughs> or some patients will be like, no, like, I don't know. And then that's when I explain, this is the time where you, you get alone time with the doctor where you can ask whatever questions that you want to ask that you may not feel comfortable asking in front of your parent. And the purpose of this is for me to help you figure out what resources I can give you or help you with. So I try to kind of like introduce the fact that we're going to talk about something that's sensitive and the reason why I'm asking these detailed questions about their sexual history. So I take that moment to pause and kind of reset and say, this is what we're going to do. So I'm very specific. I ask them, do you smoke? Do you smoke tobacco? Do you smoke marijuana? Do you vape? I ask some very specific questions because you want to make sure that you're not missing anything. I've definitely had patients say, oh, I don't smoke. And then I ask them, oh, what about this and that and this? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do that. And I'm like, so. And then I I also use that as an opportunity to educate. So if they didn't know that something contained tobacco or they they didn't know that nicotine can cause problems or they didn't know that marijuana can cause issues, I use that as an opportunity to explain the knowledge that I have in those areas, but not in a way to make it judgmental, but in a way to make sure that they feel informed. Because motivational interviewing, you can't just be like, you need to stop smoking. You need to like really get an idea of where they are in their stage of change and if they're ready to even receive that information about stopping. So it's important to kind of ask specific questions so you can gather an idea of how serious this is. If someone's telling you, I'm you know, using oxycodone 10 times a day, at that point, you're like, okay, this is really serious. We need to do something about this right now. And that is a point where I would loop in the parent. But if we're talking about smoking a cigarette once in a while, then that gives you a little bit more room to try to work directly with the patient. And then as far as sexuality, once again, I am very specific. I first ask them if they have any romantic partners or if they have any romantic relationships or if they have any relationships with anyone, what kind of things they do. I've tried to shy away from, are you sexually active? You will always get the wrong answer if you ask that question. I try to shy away from, are you attracted to boys or girls? Because some people don't know who they're attracted to. Some people identify as a different gender. And so you want to be very careful about how you word your questions because that will kind of block them out and they won't answer. 
So I try to be as open-ended as possible initially. And then I get very specific and I ask about body parts and not necessarily about acts. So for instance, I'll ask, are you having vaginal sex? Are you having anal sex? Are you having oral sex? I won't ask like, are you having sex with boys? Are you having sex with girls? Like you want to ask more about like which body parts they're using so that you know which places that you need to test for your STI screening. So I try to be very specific about those kind of things and blatantly ask all my patients. I make no assumptions about age, race, gender, whatever I ask. And sometimes your patients will laugh and be like, why are you asking me that? And I'm like, because someone said yes. <laughs> so that's why I'm asking. <laughs> At some point, someone said yes to that. So that's the reason I'm asking. So yeah, I think it's one of those conversations that can be very difficult to have. But I think the more open-minded you are and the more open you ask your questions, the better answers that you will get. And then you ask your specific questions about certain things that you need to answer so that you can do your job. Just to recap what you had mentioned, I think it's important the way that you're asking, not are you attracted to boys and girls, but who are you attracted to, right? Do you routinely also ask your patients how they identify? And how do you actually phrase that question? I think the best way to do it is to say, you know, my name is Dr. Ramsey, my pronouns are, and then you can ask them, what name do you go by? And what are your pronouns? So I think that's the most blanket way to ask it. I have to be honest in that I don't always do that. But I think it's something important that we all should do because you cannot make assumptions about how someone identifies based on how they dress or based on how they look or any of those things. So I think it's an important thing to ask up front. But it's something that we all have to practice and get better at. And I find that it sometimes does come up in the conversation about sexuality when I ask more about who are they attracted to or who they are intimate with. And sometimes it comes up in those discussions. So, And then the last S is suicide and depression. So most clinics will do a STQ screening or a PHQ-9, which is like a test that you do to screen for depression. And I often will look at that before I even start the visit so that I have an idea of where I am. If I look at it and they've scored really high, that's going to be the bulk of what we talk about. So it's important to make sure that you have that kind of screening tool so that you know what you're getting into. And then I ask them questions about how their mood has been. I try to get a general idea of like, are they happy? I don't just ask, have you in the last 12 months? Have you blah, blah, blah. I try to make it more conversational. And then I also try to elicit who is their support system so that they're doing well now. But in the case that they're not doing well, who do they turn to? Who could they talk to? And then also, what are their coping mechanisms and strategies? And if they don't have any, then that's a good time for me to be like, okay, well, have you tried deep breathing exercises? Or have you tried meditating or listening to music or taking a walk? Or I try to give them some ideas so that way, if it does come up, they have a reserve of things that they can use. And then this is when it's also important to use your resources. So I, if I identify someone who does need help, I then refer to our social worker or I try to refer them to other places where they can get help. And then I fo- try to follow up with them and kind of close that loop. Because the last thing you want to do is unroof a wound and then just be like, okay, here's your school form. Have a good day. (laughs) You want to make sure that there's a mechanism in place for someone to follow up with them and address if they need any additional help. You had briefly touched on screening for eating disorders and things like that. Do you have questions or a framework that you use to screen for these things? I don't use a particular screening. I'm sure that they exist, but most of the time I just try to ask general questions about their eating habits and then also how they feel about themselves. So, you know, do you feel like you're underweight or overweight? How do you feel about your weight? Do you ever restrict your food? Are you ever, you know, worried about gaining weight? 
those kind of questions can kind of get at an eating disorder. And also, this is another point about making sure that you look at the chart ahead of time, because if you look at the growth curve and they have significantly dropped in weight, regardless of if they tell you or not, you should be concerned. So I think it's important to look at those things ahead of time so that you have an idea of what you're going into when you talk to the patient. But the most important thing, I think, is how they feel about themselves and their eating habits. That is a pretty good red flag. So even if they're eating well and they're like, I hate my body, that's still a concern. So by and large, I feel like most parents, like you mentioned, are cool with stepping out of the room. They understand it, they expect it, and you don't get a lot of pushback. I have been in a couple of different situations that I would love to talk about a little bit more to get some strategies if you do get pushback. So I'm thinking of two specifically. One was an 18-year-old whose dad did not want to step out of the room in the emergency room when I was trying to get a HEADS assessment. And in that situation, I used the fact that he was an adult to then ask the dad to leave because it needed to be a confidential visit with an adult patient. But I have had another situation where it was a 17-year-old and the parent said something along the lines of, everything that they're going to say to you, they can say in front of me. So I'm going to stay in here. And when I offered the patient you know, how how do they feel about it? I turned to them and asked them. They seemed like they were okay with it. It still made me very uncomfortable. What kind of strategies can you use in those situations to not alienate the parent, but also get them to leave the room? Yeah, those situations are always very difficult. And that's why I think it's important to bring it up up front so that everyone knows the expectation from the beginning. So in the beginning, I'll say, this is what we're going to do today for the visit. The first part, I'm going to ask you both a couple of questions. And then, dad, I'm going to ask you to step out of the room. And then we'll do the physical exam. And then I'll give you your forms. You'll get your shots, blah, blah, blah. So I'll run down the list of what's going to happen so that they know to expect it. But there are cases where people are like, nope, I'm not leaving. I, at that point, often remind the family that this is a normal part of our protocol. It's not anything about your child or you in particular, but this is the protocol that we have in place. And this is standard of care for all adolescents across the world. This is what we are supposed to do to ensure their confidentiality and that there are times that the child may not be comfortable saying things in front of the parent that they need to just talk to the doctor alone about. And so I try to explain the reason why we do it, because sometimes parents don't really understand that. And I also talk about how we use that as time for the adolescent to practice being an adult and being an advocate for themselves, because at some point the parent is not going to be there and they're going to have to learn how to manage their own medical care. So I try to leverage that when I talk to the families about it. And then sometimes you're going to have that family that's just like, I'm not going to leave. And in that case, you're like, okay, and you ask your questions anyway, because that is your job. And so you ask it in the most sensitive way that you can, you know, and you tell the family, these are the type of questions that I ask. You do the best you can. <laughs> and then the other thing, too, is that you make sure that you give the, the patient your information. Here's our number. Here's our email. If you have any other questions or concerns, this is how you can reach out to me. I also give them information. Here's more information about puberty, like we talked about. But this website has a bunch of other information. <laughs> So I try to give them a resource so that they can read more on their own if they had a particular concern that they weren't able to bring up. Thank you so much for joining us today. As our closing question, we would love to hear either your favorite thing about being an adolescent fellow or one thing you learned recently that you can't get out of your head. I think the best part about working with adolescents is that they're just so resilient. 
I can give you so many examples of patients who just really advocated for themselves, adulted, did things on their own without anyone's help, reached out for help when they needed it. So I think adolescents really are our future. And I just think back to when I was a teenager and how much fire I had and seeing that fire in other adolescents. It's great. You're constantly learning. They're constantly keeping you on your toes. They keep you young. I just I love working with them. They're awesome. Thank you so much. Wow, Shivali, what a great episode. What did you take away from it? This episode really helped me come up with a few strategies for how to use the HEADS assessment to build a therapeutic alliance with my patient. How about you? It reminded me that if a parent feels strongly about not leaving the room, you can still just ask these questions in front of them. That way next year, they'll know what you're going to be asking their son or daughter. Exactly. And this also just helps emphasize the idea that the HEADS assessment is a totally normal part of a medical visit. Yes. And if you like this episode, you can pair it like you would a fine wine with our adolescent telemedicine episode. This should really help build a framework for treating teens in the year 2020. As always, we want to hear what we missed and what we can do better. So please reach out to us at pedsadmit at gmail.com. Yes, please reach out. We are over here refreshing. And as always, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. 